Hello travelers, welcome to the Mwende Wino podcast. Mwende Wino translates to go well in several Zambian languages and we use it to bestow travel mercies on people who are embarking on the journey. The Mwende Wino podcast aims to inspire you to explore not just your city, but your country, your continent, and beyond. In each episode, I speak to people who embody what traveling well means to them. So I'm really excited about this episode because I'm in my hometown of Lusaka, Zambia, and I'm at the Game Range International office off Leopards Hill Road, and I'm speaking to two very special guests. Now, if you have a Netflix account, you may have watched um, the movie over the Christmas season, um, which featured elephants from Game Range International. It's called Holiday in the Wild. And um, I'm actually here in Lusaka to speak to some people who were involved in um, this production as well. And you're going to hear a lot of interesting content, so please stay tuned. So my guests are Sport and Raquel. How are you guys? Hi, Hi Isabel. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Welcome a, to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. So could you please introduce yourselves for listeners and can you tell us how you became how you became involved with Game Rangers International. Okay. Ladies first. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so my name is Rachel Merton and I'm the director of Wildlife Rescue for Game Rangers International. Um, so Game Rangers International focuses on wildlife conservation here through three main um, core activities. Wildlife rescue is one community outreach and also resource protection. So I head up the wildlife rescue section. Mm -hmm. And I came to be here 11 years ago when Sport asked me to volunteer in Zambia to help set up an elephant orphanage. Mm -hmm. And what's your background? And like, did you go to school to like learn about elephants, for instance? <laughs> like, how are you, have you always been interested in, in wildlife? I have, yeah, always been interested in animals, animal welfare and wildlife. I studied biology at school and I've done a lot of volunteering, about 10 years worth of volunteering mm -hmm. in different conservation projects mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it was whilst I was doing some volunteering abroad in Cambodia that I met Sport and when he ended up in Zambia, he asked me to come and help here. Awesome. Sport? Yeah, so um, I came to Zambia in 2008 with a remit to establish the Elephant Orphanage Project mm -hmm. on behalf of David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, after four months they came out to, to visit and to commission the project um, and at that point we were made a very uh, unique offer uh, basically for us to establish our own organization mm -hmm. which we call Game Rangers International or GRI and the main focus is to empower rangers and local communities to conserve nature. So everything we do, the three components that Rachel mentioned, wildlife rescue, community outreach and resource protection, it's all about empowering the, the rangers that work in those spaces mm -hmm. to better conserve wildlife. So came to Zambia, got the Elephant Orphanage Project established and quickly realized that I needed help. Mm -hmm. um, and the best, best person I could think of at the time was Rachel. Um, and so I, I pleaded with Rachel to come to Zambia and to please come and help me. Um, and it was one of the best decisions I made. Mm -hmm. Rachel immediately embraced uh, what we were trying to do with the orphanage um, and really took ownership of it and has helped to turn the orphanage into something really special. And that then enabled me to concentrate more on supporting rangers in the resource protection space. So those are the frontline rangers who are dealing with anti-poaching, anti-trafficking of wildlife products, 
Um, but the real important space, the one that connects all of those together, is really the communities. Mm -hmm. So we, we understand and appreciate that if we don't include the local communities who live contiguous to the national parks and the protected areas, then really everything we're doing will be in vain. So the local communities must benefit. They must receive tangible benefits so that they can really appreciate and, and understand the importance of wildlife mm -hmm. and wild spaces. So that remains a sort of an underlying principle of around everything we do. Great, thanks for sharing that. We're going to talk later on about how the average person or the average traveler can can help in terms of like wildlife conservation and like wildlife protection because I think it's really important for people who travel to know. Um, I'm sure you've like seen on like Facebook or Instagram pictures of like people riding elephants and you know people like just doing it not necessarily because they're they want to support an organization but just because they want to get the most likes you know for instance or they just want to be famous and things like that so we're going to talk like a little bit about that side um later on but i wanted to know like what are your what's your what's an average day like at game international is there such thing as an average day you mentioned before we started recording that you drive but you're on the road a lot um so how much percentages do you on the road and how much percentages do you like in the office yeah, so I think because we work in three very uh, different spaces, although they're all very complementary and, and there's a real harmony between those three spaces, um, each one of them is very different. So just at that level, no day is ever the same, which, which really makes our work um, enjoyable and it's really how we're able to stay doing what we're doing because conservation is quite a challenging landscape to work in. Um, but speaking on behalf of myself, um, because I look after the organization, so I move across those three spaces, um, and hence why I have to travel quite a lot. Um, but the real enjoyment I get is when, when you're in the field working at ground level um, with the rangers uh, in either of those three spaces. Um, yeah, so the, there's probably never one day that's mm -hmm. the same as the next, mm -hmm. and, and the different spaces that Sports just mentioned, so we have our main sort of office here in Osaka, mm -hmm. um, I also work at the Elephant Nursery at Lalai, mm -hmm. um, and also our Elephant Release Facility, which is in Kafu National Park. Mm -hmm. um, so we work very, very closely with National Parks on all of the activities, um, the elephants belong to the National Park system, mm -hmm. and so we work a lot with the, the vets on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, to make sure the elephants are healthy. So my days move between being here at the office doing paperwork and a lot of fundraising activities um, and actually helping to oversee the, the younger elephants at the nursery, the ones who have just been rescued and are in the early stages of rehabilitation and then overseeing the older elephants who are out in the release facility and are being rehabilitated back into the wild. Um, we have a post-release monitoring system there so the ones who are starting to leave us, we're monitoring um, them remotely mm -hmm. and getting a feel for how they're able to survive in the world amongst wild elephants. Do you ever get like personally attached to the elephants? Like, um, I think that yeah, like you you couldn't work uh, in an environment like this and not care. Mm -hmm. So you know, you obviously form a closeness with your team and the elephants um, and care very much about all of them and particularly the keepers who are working with those elephants around the clock mm -hmm. get very very close to them but we all you know are in it for the this bigger picture of seeing them back into the wild mm -hmm. and then what that represents and the awareness that these individuals can bring for conservation internationally and you know to enable people to understand the root problems mm -hmm. and work actually you know working on the on the larger scale with the communities 
and the elephants are the ones who bring everyone's attention to those issues. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're all in that together and you know we want the elephants to be wild but of course there is a lot of worry when they do start yeah. to go back into mm-hmm. the wild because the wild is a dangerous and scary place. It's mm-hmm. full of natural threats like lions and then the man-made threats like poachers. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so important that our projects are so intricately linked with the law enforcement side and the communities because there's absolutely no point in releasing elephants into a place where they're not safe if we don't have scouts on the ground patrolling and supporting from the law enforcement perspective and if we don't have the community buy-in for the work we're doing then there's just no point in doing it. Mm. And just for your listeners' sakes, mm-hmm. uh, sake, you might hear us use the word scout, mm-hmm. which is just another another way to describe a ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just to build on what Rachel said about you know the emotional attachment, I I from the very beginning took a stance of trying to maintain a very uh, much more of a business-like approach. Mm-hmm. So we're quite lucky in that we have different layers, and and the sort of the deeper down you go, the more emotional we we would like our staff to be. Mm-hmm with the work they do, um, but sort of the higher you go, you know, we need to remain objective, make sure that, like Rachel says, the bigger picture is what we're really after. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said all of that, just recently, uh, one of the oldest orphaned elephants, who I actually found when I came to Zambia, mm-hmm. as in it was already at the location mm-hmm. where we were, were to establish the orphanage, her name is Chamalandu, um, she gave birth to Zambia's first wild-born uh, calf from from an orphaned elephant, which is a really, really special thing. Um, and so on a personal level, I'm finding it quite difficult not to get a little bit emotionally attached to this new um, arrival, whose name is Mutanzi David. Okay. Um, so yeah, for your listeners, Mutanzi is firstborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and David, obviously, we recognized David Shepard, who mm-hmm. was you know, really the person that helped us get started. Mm-hmm. And then just to, just to rewind a little bit, to come back to your question about a typical day, mm-hmm. maybe just to give your listeners a slice of a typical week, mm-hmm. and this, this is pretty much this last week, started with a, a brainstorming session here at the country office mm-hmm. with all the different conservation partners, because we're about to build a conservation education centre in the Saka National Park, so we had a whole host of people in here coming up with ideas about different content, the design of the centre, etc, etc. The next day, driving with donors out to the orphanage to go and see how things are getting on there because uh, Rachel and her team were moving two of the bigger elephant orphans from their lie out to the field. The following day, at a law enforcement camp, doing some, you know, working with the construction team, building a new anti-poaching camp. The following day at the training school, so there's, you know, there's such a wide spectrum of things that we're involved in, mm-hmm. um, and I just want to reiterate what Rachel mentioned that everything we do is with the blessing of the Department of National Parks, um, and so we really value that partnership, and of course, ultimately, it's about getting the local communities on board and involved and active um, beneficiaries of, of conservation. Thanks for sharing. Um, now, speaking of the film Holiday in the Wild, which I'm sure most of the listeners saw on Netflix, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the collaboration happened and what it was like working with the film crew? So, um, Kristen Davis, who is the lead actress of the film, and she's really the inspiration of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the film kind of represents a real-life situation that happened to her mm-hmm. when she physically helped rescue an elephant, mm-hmm. like, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so she 
was very much tied to the story and insisted that if they made it into a film, they didn't work with captive elephants mm -hmm. and that she wanted to be linked to a genuine rescue release project where the project would then receive awareness mm -hmm. due to the film. Yes. So there is that um, promotional element. So she approached us and asked if we'd be willing to do that. Um, which obviously we were quite excited about because they agreed that there would be a lot of safeguarding um, around the elephants, mm -hmm. a lot of safeguarding processes. Um, so the elephants that we work with are all rescued from you know, terrible circumstances. They've all gone through a lot of tragedies when they were orphaned, mothers being shot next to them and terrible experiences. So we don't want them to be impacted on hugely by lots of different activities. Yeah. So we really focus on um, getting them into a, a very sort of routine and calm lifestyle at the, the nursery. Mm -hmm. And when they're ready to be milk weaned, we move them out to the release facility. And we really try and minimize human impact along the way. So we don't have all the visitors coming to the nursery to actually be allowed to go near them and touch them. Mm -hmm. And so we just try and keep life as quiet as possible for them. Although we do want visitors to be engaged mm -hmm. by these elephants. Mm -hmm. So we have this large viewing deck where people can see the elephants from afar and have the stories explained and watch them being elephants, watch them with mm -hmm. each other, mm -hmm. um, but they can't really get involved. So that was going to be a bit of a challenge when filming this story of elephant rescue and rehabilitation because of course what they were trying to show in the film was an elephant physically being rescued and physically being cared for. And so um, we had a lot of discussion about that and this is where um, the entire sort of production crew and Netflix were amazing in supporting the vision that the actual orphans would be protected and so they created a body double okay. for one of the orphans at the nursery mm -hmm. and so that elephant was like the, the focal elephant of the film and so our elephant Makaliva was the inspiration or the figure that they used mm -hmm. and so they would swap between the body double puppet and the real life elephant for different shots mm -hmm. and so shots where the elephant was rescued or physically manhandled mm -hmm. Um, to be, you know, to be picked up or to have the drip put mm -hmm. into its ear because it was in critical condition. Mm -hmm. All of those scenes that wasn't actually a real elephant, mm -hmm. and so that was fantastic because we could work with them on um, what it would be like to rescue an elephant and and how you kind of care for it and how you look after it. But it wasn't one of the orphans that's being impacted. Mm -hmm. It was the orphan stable that was it was in, mm -hmm. and then there were the scenes, you know, where we could manage with with minimal kind of interference with the elephants where we use the real life elephants. So what actually happened is the orphans, um, they pretty much didn't know anything was happening. Okay. So throughout the few days that there were film uh, crew on site, the orphans continued their daily routine as normal. There was no real changes in their day. We did a couple of weighing and measuring scenes which are normal in their daily lives anyway with Kristen stepping in replacing me. Mm -hmm. So she was holding the clipboard instead of me holding mm -hmm. the clipboard. Mm -hmm. And the film crew were incredibly respectful around that. There was minimal cameras used when the elephants were actually there, despite the fact we had like 90 people at the elephant nursery, which was a huge number. Mm -hmm. And we've never had such a large number of people on the facility, but everybody was managed backstage visually kept away from everything um, people were incredibly quiet they used sign language I mean mm -hmm. we were just really impressed with the whole sort of professionalism and, and respect towards the elephants and, and the non-impact on them and just to add to that to make sure that at, at all times the elephants welfare was uh, maximized um, we in any case have a, a behavior observation study that goes on every day mm -hmm. um, and, and has been the case for a number of years now and we use that data to monitor 
each and every elephant's uh, behavior, which tells us a lot about how they're feeling, how their well-being. So throughout this whole process, that continued. Um, and so we were able to monitor how the elephants were feeling, how their well-being, and, and actually nothing changed. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's awesome. Um, in terms of like the impact of this film, like, have you seen more people interested in coming to visit um, the Levi Elephant Orphanage? Um, have you seen more people like following on Instagram, for instance? Are people? Do you think that the film actually will lead to, you know, more impact and more people actually caring about elephant conservation? Yeah, I mean, we really hope so. I think mm -hmm. that the story, obviously, it's quite a fun sort of family Christmas story, mm -hmm. but what it does tell is a very important conservation message, mm -hmm. um, which is portrayed throughout the entire film. And I think that that will bring that to the forefront of many people's minds. So as a direct result, already we have seen an increase in social media followers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so there has been support through the sort of internet system, mm -hmm. um, and online donations, which has been wonderful. Um, but I feel that in terms of people actually coming, mm -hmm. that I'm hoping would happen in the coming years. Yeah. You know, I think mm -hmm. people at home are watching this. Yeah. Maybe they're gonna plan a holiday mm -hmm. in Zambia now, but I mean, that's yeah. what we're hoping. Yes, I mean, sure. We really hope that this will bring attention to Zambia as a country. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, Zambia hasn't been at the sort of forefront of travel destination mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're abroad. And so now people actually know its name. Mm -hmm. Um, the name Zambia was associated with the film quite a bit, mm -hmm. so hopefully people will actually start looking for us and, mm -hmm. and coming to see all the other things that Zambia has to offer. I mean, the Elephant Orphanage is a very small part of what's going on in, in Zambia, mm -hmm. so, um, but if we can play a part in bringing people and, and highlighting the awareness of this country, then, then that's fantastic. Awesome. So in terms of like how to support GRI, you just mentioned online donations, but for people that are in Zambia, um, so they can go to the Vilai Elephant Orphanage. Yeah, absolutely. So the Elephant Nursery is open every day, um, and it's from 11.30 to 1 on a daily basis. You can come, and we recommend people get there at 11.30, because once the elephants arrive, they drink their milk very quickly, mm -hmm. and that's always quite an exciting thing to see. Mm -hmm. um, and they're there for that short period of time, and people can watch them from the viewing deck. There's always a member of staff narrating and explaining who the elephants are and giving their stories and, and kind of telling the bigger picture of conservation too and the importance that these individuals are playing in, in gaining larger scale support for some of the issues on the ground. Um, we, we, yeah, so we also do have um, the release facility in Kafu National Park which people can stop in and see, mm -hmm. but it's not as easily accessible, so it's not something that many people do come to mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. um, but we do do some limited viewing there as well. It's all very much distance viewing because mm -hmm. we, again, we don't want to impact on the elephants, so mm -hmm. it's not about getting up close and personal, it's mm -hmm. about seeing the elephants in their natural environment with the other elephants that they're becoming a family with. Mm -hmm. And just, and just to add to that, um, some <clears throat> an exciting thing maybe for more for the local listeners, uh, but, but also the international listeners, is that I mentioned earlier about the Conservation Education Centre. Mm -hmm. So Zambia, with I think a lot of wisdom and foresight, have established uh, the 20th National Park. Yes, and it's the Lusaka National Park. Mm -hmm. It's right here on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful piece uh, of landscape. Um, and so we're really excited to be working with national parks. We're actually going to move the Lilai Elephant Nursery into Lusaka National Park. Um, it'll be built alongside this education centre. Mm -hmm. um, so there's going to be this really exciting facility to encourage, really encourage the local uh, residents of Lusaka, but everyone in Zambia. We would wish for them to visit 
uh, Lusaka National Park and just get a taste of the protected areas that Zambia has to offer and hopefully that would inspire people to possibly get in their car or get on a bus mm -hmm. and go and visit some of Zambia's amazing um, protected areas including the Kafui National Park where like Rachel mentioned the release facility is established so we're quite excited about that um, and it really you know speaks to the bigger picture because the elephant orphans are you know it's, it's a fantastic project it's a, it's, it's a very meaningful project but it can help to bring a lot of awareness um, to the bigger picture of conservation. Great. Now speaking of like national parks uh, do you have any personal favorite national parks in Zambia that you like to visit? I would have to be and Kafiri National Park is the second largest park in Africa yes. it's a huge huge piece of mm -hmm. wilderness mm -hmm. um, and when you drive into it it has a very very wild feeling mm -hmm. um, yeah the animals there are stunning um, but they're wild mm -hmm. so um, you know you can't always drive in and expect to see them right by your car and in fact they're a little bit more skittish than some of the other parks mm -hmm. but you know Lower Zambezi, South Luangwa and Musiatunya all have large numbers of elephants mm -hmm. that are more habituated to tourism mm -hmm. so easier if you want to kind of you know, sit in a car in a relaxed manner mm -hmm. and watch some elephants yeah. those other three yeah. parks would be probably the places to go yeah. but Kafui is stunning and has some beautiful landscape um, and the higher population of wild dogs, so it's it's mm. a really and and cheetahs. <laughs> yeah. It's a really exciting place to visit. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with Rachel. I think we have to. Well, I'm certainly biased towards <laughs> the Kafui landscape, and I, I say the word landscape because the national parks in Zambia are all surrounded by game management areas, mm. which are community-owned mm. areas where wildlife can be utilised on a sustainable basis. So we focus very much on trying to help the local community secure the game management areas especially around the Kafui National Park, but also in the Lower Zambezi, we've just started a new project there. Um, and what's interesting about Kafui and the Elephant Orphanage Project, and, and in fact GRIs, that was the, the sort of the national park that we were pointed towards mm -hmm. when we were conceptualizing this whole thing. Uh, Kafui National Park, as Rachel mentioned, one of the largest protected areas, in, certainly in Southern Africa. It forms part of the Kaza landscape, which represents five countries, 19 you know, national parks. It's a supernova of a protected area, the Kaza landscape. So Kafui is the northern tip of that, um, and it really needed a lot of help. It still does, um, but it has so much potential, and, and the, the different landscapes, the different ecosystems. You know, you can spend three weeks in Kafui and not see the whole park. So it's a very, it's a very um, viable destination. Uh, it's not far from Saka either. So. No, it's a three-hour drive just to get to the edge of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing place, and we feel very privileged to to be working alongside national parks and the local communities to try and secure it for the future. Awesome! Thanks for sharing. I did a podcast episode in season one, so for all the listeners, you can go back in the archives and check where we did uh, how to go on a solo safari, and we had Chipo Autumn, who's a travel blogger, Zambian travel blogger, and she went to Kafue National Park by herself. We did a whole episode on like how to travel solo, and then we have I have a big, a larger episode coming soon on um, planning your first your first safari in Zambia. So Kafue National Park is on that list for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now in terms of like success stories, like do you have any favorite personal success stories to share from all your years oh. of working at GRI? There's so many, to be honest. <laughs> um, 
just off the top of my head, I think, you know, Game Rangers, it really speaks about the humans involved in, in looking after wildlife and wild spaces. So for me, if I was to think of a success story, I would, I would think of um, a young man who joined us on day one. He sort of, as a casual worker, a very good worker. Um, and so when we were billeting out, you know, different staff into the new positions that, that were created, um, because obviously there's, you know, we, we do employ quite a lot of people now. We started with five. We now employ 65 full-time Zambians and we're supporting 100 frontline rangers. Um, but right in the early days when we were trying to put all the right people into the right positions, uh, this particular person, um, and I'm going to mention his name because he's, he is a great guy. His name's Carlington, Carlington Kafwabwe. Mm -hmm. He uh, just didn't, we didn't know where to put him. Mm -hmm. He just didn't want to, he didn't want to be a, a keeper, he didn't want to be a cook, mm -hmm. didn't really want to be a driver, you know. Um, and then through my background, um, I realized that we needed to actually train a mechanic. Mm -hmm. So I, I offered him that position and, and his eyes lit up and he took it. Mm -hmm. And it was really, again, such a good decision to put him into that position because now he has risen from being just a casual worker 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. He's now our workshop and developments manager. You know, he's totally in charge of everything he does. So everything, whenever we do building all our vehicles, because we run quite a big fleet of vehicles. So for me personally, he represents a real success story of someone who, who is a hard worker, wanted to get ahead, you know, and really um, dedicated himself to his job and has climbed the ladder very well and I have no doubt that he's going to continue on an upward trajectory based on his performance to date. So yeah, that, that for me is one of many, many mm -hmm. success stories. Yeah. Um, well, from the animal mm -hmm. side, right, sports really mentioned our biggest success, which would actually be the fact that one of the orphans who's been rehabilitated through the program has gone into the wild, spent four years roaming freely, uh, became pregnant and then started hanging around us a bit more mm -hmm. again because she was like, oh, I'm vulnerable now. Yeah. And she had her baby right in the middle of our camp yeah. um, and, so, and has been with us ever since, keeping her little ones safe mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me is a huge success that, you know, we've, we've reached that kind of age with the elephants and the ability for them to go off and, and have that happen. Um, so yeah, that, that's been an amazing thing um, to be part of. Um, similarly, like along the sort of the human aspects, you know, the fact that when we first started the project, most of the guys who work as keepers came from communities which were struggling with human different conflict. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a mindset where the elephant was the enemy, and they came to start looking after baby elephants, and they were laughed at initially, they, was, they, they were kind of looked at as shepherds of, of elephants, which also wasn't a particularly high-respected thing, but they were mocked, um, and they stayed with us. And these guys are now like incredible elephant handlers who understand animals intricately, have a very special bond with them, and can work with animals that are otherwise incredibly dangerous to be around, that you or I couldn't approach. Um, and they are very well respected in their communities now because not only have the communities received benefits from our presence and seeing the project expand and support um, throughout the community work that we do, but also just seeing that you know it is a highly respected job and they have a good position mm -hmm. within the system and 
you know, they, they wear nice uniforms and they, <laughs> they, they just have a good sort of lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, which is highly sought after. And so from a time where we were bringing people in and almost begging people to come and join, mm-hmm. now we have inundated with job applications mm-hmm. all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so it's something that they're taking very seriously. And then those guys are also having, you know, increased aspirations to progress themselves professionally. One of the keepers is studying to become a vet. Um, you know, so for us, that's also a massive success story because it's the success of the personal growth within the program. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think our true success, our our, our long term success indicator, mm-hmm. will be when there is no need for an elephant orphanage project. Mm-hmm. I think that will really be the, the 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 real measure of success. And unfortunately, I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when human elephant conflict stops because local communities are once again, and I say once again because local communities used to live in harmony with nature and it's, it's through modern times that we've created this discord and this, you know, this sort of uh, conflict between humans and wildlife. So once that stops, and it's, it's definitely possible, um, and once the, the poaching and the killing of wildlife stops, um, I think that will be the true success. But in the meantime, sort of in the short to medium term, Another good success indicator would be that the release area where these orphaned elephants are being released back into, it represents about a million acres. It's a huge area. It's also home to one of Zambia's highest uh, density populations of elephant, which is why why we chose that area for for the orphanage. Once the release area is secure, um, because these, you know, a lot of time and energy goes into getting these orphaned elephants to to a stage where they can go back in the wild, we need to make sure that that release area is safe. And it benefits all the other wildlife. So the lions, the wild dogs, the cheetahs, vultures, the wild elephants, you know, everything. Everything will be protected. So that, that for me, is a, is a short to medium term goal. And we look forward to when, when we can put our hands up and say the release area is safe. Mm-hmm. And then we can replicate that mm-hmm. into other, other parts of Kifui and other protected areas in Zambia mm-hmm. and, and also beyond. Um, I know Rachel that there's a volunteer program as well that people can sign up, mm-hmm. right? So even if they're not based in Zambia, they can like come together yeah. for a couple of weeks or months to volunteer. Right? Yeah, so we do. We have a volunteer program that operates just under a month okay. period, mm-hmm. um, and the volunteers are assigned. There's, there's three different programs, but the, the sort of um, primary or most interesting piece that we seem to get signed up for is the elephant behaviour mm-hmm. work. So. Um, Paul mentioned it already, but we've run a behaviour study, which um, is really critical for us in terms of understanding the elephants and helping inform management decisions mm-hmm. around them to safeguard them, also to support with their release process. So volunteers can come and they actually spend many hours in the field watching the elephants and recording. They're trained first, they understand what it is they're looking for, the different types of behaviour, and then they actually go into the field and watch these elephants and have to record the data very accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that program at both the nursery level and the release site. So we're monitoring the elephants from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people have been interested in coming to join us to take part in that, as well as um, working with some of the school groups, um, the schools that we work in, and helping deliver the um, community outreach programs. Awesome. And people can go on the website to... Yeah, our website up. has all the information on how to sign up for that. So if anyone's interested, they should... Um, have a look on there and it'll tell you who to email and we have an information pack and a questionnaire so we can ensure that we place people appropriately. Awesome. 
now just to end the podcast um there's so I'm on Instagram and I follow a lot of travel bloggers and travel influencers and I noticed that a lot of them take pictures where they go to places that say that they're helping elephants and then they like ride the elephants and I mean I've like done like I've looked into like different stories and a lot of times like these elephants are like broken down like emotionally and then they have like people riding them so like I guess for the listeners like what is the impact of like you know riding elephants like what does it actually do to elephants and why is it something that shouldn't be done Rachel's looking at me so I'm, I'm gonna um have a good answer in that um, and maybe this is more of a personal opinion um, I feel yeah, there's, there's so many unethical stories that you hear that, that unfortunately the, the entire sort of elephant back safari industry if you want to call it that has, has been tainted however whilst we are very committed to what we're doing and we, you know, we want to get these um, elephants, these orphaned elephants back in the wild. I do feel perhaps there are some operations who are genuine mm-hmm. and who are doing it in a way to also help raise awareness mm-hmm. and to put something back into conservation. Mm-hmm. I th- you know, conservation is such a, a needy space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's an expensive undertaking. Mm-hmm. So I think we could all be a lot more sympathetic to very well-run ethical operations that looked at putting a, a quite a substantial percentage of their earnings back into elephant and landscape conservation. But apart from that, I, I personally have never ridden an elephant, mm-hmm. I don't wish to, um, and a lot of the operations I've seen are, are quite sad, mm-hmm. and I, th- I, think it's, I think there's better ways to, to make a living mm-hmm. than to do that. So, yeah, that, that's my, my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it, it's difficult to generalize um, and that you know there's a lot of there's been a lot of pressure on a lot of those operators to stop elephant riding and there's a number that have stopped mm-hmm. elephant riding mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's important from a behavioral perspective if an animal is in captivity all of its life and it's trained in a certain way if you just suddenly stop that you have to replace it with something else mm-hmm. otherwise you're going to create other problems mm-hmm. for elephants mm-hmm. so I'm not certainly saying that any of those things are right or wrong, mm-hmm. but just that there's a lot of considerations that have to be taken mm-hmm. um, in terms of that whole industry and you know, and a number of animals that are raised in captivity, you can't just release them into the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, they would become dangerous, mm-hmm. um, not just, you know, they can inj- get injured themselves, you know, injure people, um, conflict with other elephants. I mean, there's just a lot of issues around that. So none of it is an easy... Um, like quick solution mm-hmm. to the elephant riding industry mm-hmm. at all. But like Rachel says, there are a number of um, elephant back safari outfits who have stopped their mm-hmm. their activities, and I think they should be commended because what we're seeing with some of them anyway is that they really are trying to do something better mm-hmm. for the elephants, you know, and and for the for the conservation of of wild herds of elephants. So it's a difficult one. Um, and I, but I think it, as well it represents a very interesting time in humanity mm-hmm. really uh, the, the fact that we're even talking about this for me is exciting mm-hmm. I think it really it bodes well for the future mm-hmm. um, I think more and more people are much have a much greater awareness now of, of wildlife and some of the challenges that you know us humans impose on them and so yeah it's mm-hmm. I think things are, are changing for the better mostly mm-hmm. of course there's still 
areas that need a lot of improvement. It kind of links into another, a whole other podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, people identify with an animal when they can see it up close and they can experience it. Mm-hmm. And throughout many places in the world, people only get to do that through captive animals. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually visiting a national park is a luxury. Yes. You know, most of us who go to the national parks are quite privileged to be able to do that because mm-hmm. we can afford to do it. Yeah. And so without having some captive animals, other people wouldn't get to appreciate them at all. Mm-hmm. So how do you inspire people to care about the animal if you don't ever get to see it? Mm-hmm. And books and television are never the same. Mm-hmm. They don't substitute for seeing an animal in the flesh. So when we built the elephant nursery, we did have that in mind. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that in Lusaka, children, visitors, residents, everybody had access to see these baby elephants because who isn't going to want to see a baby elephant? They are very um, endearing. Mm-hmm but in a way that we would safeguard the elephant. It's really important that people can actually connect to the individual, hear their story, see them moving and playing, and that makes them care about the animal. So, you know, I think there is, there's that, as I say, it's a whole other topic, but like having, having a connection with an animal one-on-one enables you to then care about the bigger picture. And I think that's actually how my entire career started, was by visiting yeah. um, and seeing animals up close when I was younger. But you know, ultimately, wild animals belong in the wild, yes. and that's our philosophy is. Mm-hmm. And so, unless an animal is 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 injured because of man, so we we generally only get involved with wildlife that's been injured because of human impact. So, if a lion tackles a zebra, for example, and breaks its leg, we we're not going to interfere because that's nature. But mm-hmm. if a if a a vehicle bumps an elephant and and injures it, mm-hmm. the wildlife rescue department. Yeah. Um, will spring into action and go and help it. So, uh, based on that, sometimes an animal is so severely injured that it can't return to the wild because if if it were to do so, it, it would it wouldn't survive very long. It would ha- or it wouldn't have a, a very decent standard of living. So sometimes in those cases, those animals can actually become ambassadors for wildlife mm-hmm. um, and maybe live out their days, you know, in a, in a very caring environment where. Um, you know, they, they could be helping to raise awareness and, and bring an education component to, to you know, to wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, I think also we're living in an area where technology is just getting better and better and better. And I think it, it shouldn't be long before, you know, things like zoos and, and all those types of um, facilities could be using much more technology mm-hmm. so that people can, can have immersive experiences, mm-hmm. innovative experiences. Um, of wildlife that would then encourage them to go and see the animals living in their natural environments. I think that's where we're headed mm-hmm. and again that's why I feel it, it is exciting. You know we, we're all living in, a, in an area where we're on the cusp of entering this new space. What we've got to make sure though is that the wild spaces and the wildlife is still there in 10 to 15, 20 years time when you know when the younger generations would wish to enjoy them and that, that's, our, that's our, our big job. in the show notes and you can find them when doing a podcast on Spotify or on SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Anchor, 
and Player FM. Make sure you subscribe for future episodes, leave a review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Now, Sport and Rachel, on your next travels, I wish you a safe trip, or as we say in Zambia, Wendy, you know. Zikumu Kwambiri. Thanks, Mzuba. You're welcome.